0: Our scripture reading for today comes from Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If any one else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord.
1: If you were here at the time of the Sunday school hour, you may have experienced a little bit of of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, There was a discussion at that time about the necessity of the exchange. Our life for Christ's life, Christ's life for our life. And Christ makes us that offer. He has that as a fundamental aspect of the, the gospel. And that salvation actually, that is what it fundamentally is. Salvation is not just a declaration of pardon that your sins are forgiven, and that you have escaped condemnation, and that you now have life with God, but it is an actual exchange of that life. The justification is done on the basis of faith, and that faith is a grace gift, as Ephesians 2 says, but that is not the only aspect of salvation. Along with that faith is a transference, where I am given the opportunity to have the life of Christ apply to my life. And in, and for that, Christ also is willing to take my sin and my shame. And so in this passage today, as we're pursuing this this uh, season of Lent, as we're pursuing a, a an environment or a, a lifestyle these few weeks before Easter, of examining what exactly is it that Christ came to do and to provide for us, it's helpful to look at the apostolic witness of what exactly a Christian walk lived out looks like. And that's exactly what Paul gives us today in this reading in Philippians 3. He's providing, essentially, a testimony of what has happened for him. These are indicatives. These are things that are demonstrated as already having taken place. But as soon as he explains some of those things, he then begins to call us into that very same walk. And so today's message is about receiving righteousness, that is receiving the righteousness of Christ, which is given to us on faith, on the basis of faith, not as a reward for faith, as we're going to see, although the, you can read it, if you read it, uh, precisely, You can come away with that understanding. But receiving that righteousness, entering into it, and then walking according to it, not walking in such a way as to earn it, nor add to it. And it's important to understand that that reception of the righteousness is not done as a reward, but rather it's done as the starting point, the foundation for Christian walk. So as Christians, as we think about how do we live out our faith, it has to be grounded in a righteousness which is alien to us it is foreign to us it doesn't arrive derive from us nor is it earned by us and i hope to be able to unpack that today so first we're going to look at the fellowship which exists in christian Life. Uh, Our church is called Grace Christian Fellowship, and the reason it's called Grace Christian Fellowship is we seek to be those who would empower you to be able to pursue the life of God. And then the 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 word fellowship connotes or or implicates that there is a mutual life that we have as brothers and sisters. It is not a life that is lived in isolation. It's not a life that is individualistic, nor is it self directed or self-focused. It is otherly focused, and it is directed by the tools of God's grace, which are his word, his spirit, and his church. And so that idea of true Christian fellowship, Paul begins this chapter uh, explaining exactly how the Christians are to understand how does their life together work? What is it made up of? And what, what are those things which are not a part and then, which are those things that are necessary and uh, and right to have in that fellowship? We're going to look at the righteousness of faith, as Paul explains the righteousness which he says is he's eager to receive, he's desirous of. From there, we're going to look at how he then begins to to talk about a walk or a pursuit of that. Normally, that's ter- used uh, a a term is used of that called sanctification. If you've never heard that word before, it's just a a large word for the idea of how is it that, or in an understanding of how do Christians begin to live out the righteousness which they have received, and and the idea of sanctification is that, especially in in the New Testament epistles, is one of progressive unveiling. That is, as I continue to walk with Christ, His life should be becoming made manifest in my life. So, after that, Paul then begins to call these Philippian Christians, these Christians at the city of Philippi to imitate him and I, I want to look at a few what I call what I like to refer to it wasn 't my term, but I like to refer to these as sacred cows uh, in Hinduism. Uh, our brother Anvesh knows Frank uh, quite clearly they 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 revere cows and they they think they're holy and so it's a sacred cows is a term in English parlance or English speak to to talk about those things which are doctrines that we esteem highly, but they're actually no doctrines at all. I want to look at one of those uh, today that I would just encourage you to pluck right out of your mind, get rid of it and dispel with it and never use it again. Um, and it has to do with Paul's command to the Philippian Christians to imitate me. And uh, that's a high calling. And so this this high calling that Paul sees is worth rejecting everything else in life and we're going to now take a look at some of those aspects. Right at the beginning of this chapter, Paul says, "It is right for me to remind you of these things, and it is safe for you." Many of us as Christians, we we've bought into a false assurance that basically has translated to I can coast. I'm good. I'm saved. Paul says that it's right for him to remind them, and it's safe for them, which implies that there is some sort of spiritual danger at work in these in the lives of these Christians. It is not just it should not just be assumed that you're in a in a peaceful time. if anything, the New Testament witness is contrary to that idea that over and over again Paul uses the imagery and metaphors of war war time is is absolutely intense. It, it's not a, a time in which you assume that you're just safe and that you're just uh, able to to go about your life. Last night as I was taking a break during uh, my preparation for this, a wonderful Christian brother shared with me a video of a uh, scope on an airsoft gun, and he was playing a game of airsoft. If you don't know what airsoft is, it's a little—it's basically paintball for— um, people who want to inflict more pain. It's just these little plastic pellets, and it's somewhat, it's somewhat realistic. It's not at all like a bullet or anything like that. And over and over again, this guy is, is using an airsoft gun, and he's sniping people across the field who are sitting there, not taking cover, just out in the open, and one after another person has this dumbfounded look after getting hit with this plastic pellet of where did that come from? And I was just sitting there thinking to myself, this is amazing that, you know, they knew they were in a context of this game. It wasn't like he was shooting at people who weren't in the field. They were all in camo. They all had their own guns and and they were caught off guard because they didn't assume that they could be touched at that that, uh, distance. And so Paul says this is a safe thing for the Philippian Christians. This is something that they need to take to heart. It's something that provides security. And so he, he writes that that it is safe for them to hear these things again, and then he begins to give some warnings about the nature of Christian fellowship. Uh, in verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Now, I'm not advocating that you go around and call people dogs, but what, what I would like to, to suggest is if he is telling them to be on the alert, for those who would be like dogs, then that must mean that there are people whose desire it is, play, that desire being placed in them by Satan himself and his kingdom, his, his little dominion that he rules over, uh, to disrupt the life and peace of the church. If there are dogs coming in, that means they are were susceptible to that. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. One of those sacred cows in in evangelicalism right now is the refusal to name names of false teachers and false preachers. I would just encourage you that there really are false teachers at work, especially on the national scene. And you should not simply blindly receive every teaching that you hear. Just because it is on the radio, and in fact one of the great indications of its danger is that it's on the radio, and especially if it's on the TV, is is that there are people who are trying to get in and disrupt the life and the fellowship that exists in the church. Paul says that these people are dogs, and he's referring to them as those who the book of Proverbs says return to their folly. The book of Proverbs says that one who returns to his folly is like a dog who returns to its vomit. Now this is what I, what I love about the scriptures is that it's so beautifully clear in its imagery. There is no way to make it more plain what the, the book of Proverbs is trying to say and Paul here by his use and Peter's use in 2 Peter chapter 2. He, he uh, In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter actually explains this in explicit detail that those who have heard of the life of Christ, those who have heard of the gospel, those who have heard an offer of reconciliation with God based upon faith in Christ, trust in Christ, and repentance from dead works, those who return back to their former manner of living are considered to be a dog who returns to its vomit. What does the dog do? It eats it. It eats the vomit. I don't know about you, but that is a terrible image I've been sick a few times in my life to the point where I've vomited a few times in a row, especially with flu-like symptoms. One time it was, you know, just in the middle of the night, just kind of a random moment where I had to run to the bathroom. What the, the, the image is trying to convey is this is totally unthinkable. If you had any activity going on in your mind, any sense of the taste or the revulsion, literal revulsion that you had just experienced in that vomit, to return to that and then to have that become a source for your food is absolutely unthinkable. And this is what Paul is saying. Those who see or hear of Christ and then turn away from him, seeking to justify themselves again by their own effort and record, are those are, are considered to be those who eat vomit. It's absolutely disgusting. And so he tells them to be on the lookout for this and then gives them some conditions about the life of God. And so this is where we get into the understanding of what it means for Christians to have fellowship with one another. He actually goes so far as to say concerning these people, the Jews who were uh, attempting to be justified by their works, to actually not be in the fellowship at all. And uh, this is understood with just a little bit of unpacking of this phrase in verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision. Now, at first that may not seem like a very weighty statement of Paul, but Paul is actually using the term that the Jews used for themselves. At first, when the Christian faith was beginning, there was a term that was used among the Jews to describe the Christians as the way. And they used this term to describe the Christians uh, as the way, as as identifying them as being distinctly different from normal Judaism. That is, in, at the time of Christ, there was a practice of Judaism, and as Christianity was beginning, the Jews began to identify the Christians with a distinct term, the way to, to differentiate themselves, to make, a, to make a division, to make a clear difference. And so here, Paul is using the term that the Jews used to self-identify as the people of God, this phrase, the circumcision. This is effectively for Paul a title. It's a title for those who consider themselves to be at right with God based on their circumcision in the flesh. And so this is the covenant sign and symbol for the the Jews at this time. And Paul goes so far as to use their term. Imagine doing this today in, in the political correctness political correctedness, correctedness of our time to steal or to hijack some term and then say, no, they're not the real revolutionaries or they're not the real zealous ones or they're not the real conservatives, we are. This is so, uh, if, if it wasn't the truth, it would be pr- uh, proud and arrogant, But Paul identifies those Christians, those who have received the righteousness of God, as being the true circumcision. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. They absolutely, he's identifying the marks of Christian fellowship. Those who do not continue to put confidence or put trust in what they themselves could have done or have received. The reason he uses the term flesh is not to just talk about the physical body. Of course, there's a play on words here between the circumcision of the the male part and the confidence which is in the flesh. He's going further than just the body to also talk about all of life, that very thing which he has received. See, Jews at this time, as Paul is about to enumerate, identify their righteous standing before God on the basis of their race and who they were as God's chosen people. And they assume that being a member of that nation, or being a member of that people, simply by an outward sign and symbol, necessarily means that they are a part of the true communion and true fellowship. But brothers and sisters, it is not the case. There's a common phrase in, in modern parlance, just because you go to McDonald's, it doesn't mean you're a hamburger. That's exactly what's going on here. Paul is making a distinction between those who have a physical outward sign and those who have true fellowship in God. What Paul is essentially saying is you can receive circumcision, but not be a true worshiper. And this is especially true today. You can have all the trappings of Christianity. You can attend church every week, more than once a week, even if you wish. But that does not mean you have become A part of this life and fellowship in God, those who worship in spirit and truth. And so our spiritual worship to God is a reception of and participation in. I wanna make that very clear. It's a reception of righteousness which comes to us by faith, and then it is a participation in, or it's a communion in, that very righteousness which we have received. That's what it means for Paul to say that he puts no confidence in the flesh. And we're gonna see exactly as he unpacks that through the rest of the chapter. So changing my locus or my center of trust from Christ to myself is ultimate folly. But rather, putting it in Christ and not putting it in myself is true spiritual worship. As Christians, we do not just consider worship to take place on a Sunday morning. It envelops and includes all of life. And, it, and with that idea, with that understanding, we have to see that it not just is what we do externally, but also how we think about God and how we think about our relationship with Christ. If, although you do have a life and a relationship with God, and you are beginning to see him and understand him more clearly, if you persist in maintaining a mode of thought which says, I'm really in charge, and this faith is really a result of my effort and my pursuing him, then you do not know him as you should, as Paul says later in this chapter. The work of Christ is so central to the faith that it demolishes everything else in life, that's hard to understand, but essentially what I mean is every other thing other than Christ Jesus is not a component of your faith. That is, it's not something that started you in the faith. It is only the central work of Jesus Christ that our foundation, that the foundation of our faith is placed upon. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if, everyone, if anyone else thinks he has more reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. What Paul's saying is, I have rejected everything that which was saying I had a good report or a good something that was, would commend me to God whether it's a particular aspect of life or heritage, those things that we have done or those things that we've been born into and received, Paul rejects all of it as not counting an, an iota on the scale cons- compared to the glory of Jesus Christ. When Paul is making an estimation of the scenario, when he's evaluating and and comparing his life and analyzing his life, his walk with Christ, he says all that he would have counted as gain, he is considering it to be loss. He's considering it to be worthless. And we're about to see in a few moments an even more wonderful image of what uh, Paul is describing self-righteousness to be. We saw the one who turns back to self-righteous as a dog who returns to its vomit. So if that wasn't disgusting enough, we're going to look at another uh, image here. But before we get there, look at exactly what Paul identifies as those things which he could have placed confidence and indeed used to place confidence in, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. That is according to the law of God. And just to indicate this aspect of receiving a faith, receiving a tradition, uh, just in case you were not aware, you cannot circumcise yourself on the eighth day. It is something that is done to you. The obedience of Paul's parents was something that Paul looked to as his religious pedigree. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Again, those things you cannot decide. Those things are simply received by you. You don't choose in which culture or time to be born in. Those are things which God has sovereignly determined for you. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, of Pharisee. What Paul is stating, and may I remind you, this is the very word of God. He's stating that he was perfect and blameless as according to the law. Now, I don't know about your theology. That's really hard to believe for me. But uh, there's no rebuke of Paul in, in this chapter. There's no rebuke of Paul in any other place in the scriptures. And I believe as Protestants, we can all agree that the scripture cannot be broken. This is the very word of God. And so in some way, Paul is true here. But what he's stating is even though he had a blameless walk according to the law, it was a perverse understanding and interpretation of the law. By, by Paul saying this, he's not maintaining that he has no need of Christ. What he's stating is, in the context of how they were understanding the law, he was blameless. But then it, we continue, he says, as a persecutor of the church, clearly it must be understood that he was not in full keeping with the true law of God, which always is to love your neighbor. He, he absolutely was not he, perfect and blameless to the law as God understands the law but rather as he and their culture understood the law. And then the payoff verse is verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, looking at these things, it may seem kind of abstract. So I want you to do something for just a moment is consider what are your things that you may have hoped in or placed trust in. I'm gonna, as you do that, I'm gonna just give you a few things in my life. I was born to Christian parents. Who are good parents? Uh, they they stayed together. They didn't get divorced, so I could I could put confidence in that. I did relatively well in school. Uh, I I got a full ride to to college, and uh, I subsequently lost it in the seventh out of eighth quarter. But so there's no no boasting here. Um, I I had a good job from the time I was 15, and I've made pretty good money in my life, and. I've tried to do charitable works and good things. I married a righteous woman, and I'm a pastor of a church, and I lead worship, and I encourage people in the faith. But guess what? All of those things are completely worthless. Completely worthless. Because as Christians, we know they're all filled with mixed motivations. And by the way, I only told you the good things. (laughs) There's a much longer list, which we can talk about later. The point, is, the point is, Paul is saying that everything which he would have put confidence in, he is now not putting confidence in. He's not putting confidence in it in any way. Paul looks to his placement with the people of God as all things that he's received, and he rejects them as having no standing at all. In the balance of the scale, it's less than dust. It's not going to change the scale at all. So consider what you've put your trust in other than Christ. It may be things like those things which I enumerated. Perhaps you believe that you have a good place or God thinks well of you because you were born in a Christian home. But guess what? Again, you did not choose to be born in that home. You didn't choose for your parents to stick together or to be divorced. You didn't choose to be brought up in a good school or in a bad school. None of those things were of your decision or choice, and therefore you shouldn't put any trust in them. But what Paul is trying to show is even the things that you did have control of, so to speak, even those things you shouldn't put confidence and hope in. In the light of Jesus Christ, the plane is completely leveled. There is nothing which counts for my for my account. There is nothing which matters other than what Jesus Christ has done. And in that receiving of righteousness, I can continue. It's a great leveling field. And one of the The fantastic aspects about that is it doesn't matter if you come from a bad background or from a good background. What was the message of John the Baptist? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Every mountain will be humbled and every valley will be exalted. Jesus Christ is the great leveler. So if you're trusting in your upbringing or your education or your social status or your friends or how how much uh, you make, Or what, uh, you know, who you're voting for. I'm not putting my confidence in anybody this year. But uh, I don't know. I might might vote for somebody. Who knows? But the point is, I shouldn't base my day-to-day life or even any aspect of how I think about God or how I understand God to think about me as being based on something that I could have achieved or I could have earned. Paul is saying that all of it, in the light of Jesus Christ, is completely worthless. I do encourage you to vote for godly leaders if you find one. So this is essentially the message is Christians should not just be circumspect about their sins. We're very comfortable with that. Uh, if you grew up as a Baptist or a Catholic, maybe you've heard this joke that, uh, you know, Catholics can be guilty about anything. I don't know. If, have you, has anybody heard that joke? We don't have a lot of Catholics here. I, I was at an event this last week, and, and someone said that about Baptists. Right? and it was a person who self-identified as a Baptist, just for the record, they they said, you know, Baptists, we can be guilty about anything. And so as Christians, we routinely are comfortable with being circumspect or being cautious about those things which we know to be sin. That is, we know this is wrong, we know this is against the word of God, and so we should not at all be boasting in that, but rather we should rightly repent from it, experience rem- our, the remorse of, of um after the sin, and then renounce it and walk in newness of life, but beyond that, we should be even more willing to be circumspect about those things that we consider to be good works like i like a, the litany of things which I just named, all of those things have this subtle deception in them, even if done in the right motive at the time, is after the fact you think to yourself, "Well, that was really good, wasn't it?" See, this is how the devil works; he doesn't just attempt to tempt you with bad things. He also tempts you with pride. And if this is a new idea to you, I would submit that actually this is a great stronghold in your life. If you do not routinely examine your motivations after the fact and see, see that there is a temptation to be proud in, that do, in the doing of that thing, then I would suggest that you're missing out on a major aspect of temptation from the enemy. This is like those, those kids I saw on that video I mentioned earlier, just sitting in their, in their fort and being sniped out of left field, out of nowhere. This is what it is like for a Christian. There is a war going on, we are to be circumspect. There is a temptation just as much as it is to be ashamed of sin as to be proud in our good works. And those good works, although they be done in a right motivation afterwards, can be a great source of temptation. So true love for my neighbor must be done in, through, and for the love of God. It cannot be done for self, and Paul then begins to bring this out as he calls these Philippian Christians to imitate him. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I don't often... Like to go and look at many translations at one time. But I would just encourage you that although I'm not a King James onlyist, I think the King James is much better in this verse. Because the word for rubbish is frankly an imprecise translation. The word for rubbish is the Greek word which would be translated today as crap. And lest you think that I have now sinned in the house of the Lord, that is what the word means. He considers everything that he has in life that he used to boast in to be considered to be dung. That's what it says in the King James is dung. If you were going to make a modern translation, you would probably need to use the word crap. There are other words which are more crass than that, which would probably be more appropriate. The point is to offend the religious heart with the word. And so Paul is using this term explicitly. He's using this term to describe those things. And a few times in my, my pastoring, people have said, well, if this is the case, then how can I ever know that I'm pleasing toward God? And what I said to this person when they, when they asked the question this time concerning this passage and the passage where it says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, it's not that as Christians we cannot do good things that are pleasing to the Father. But what, what Paul is saying here is when we take those good things and we hold them up to God and say, God, this is what I want to be considered upon. This is how I want to be evaluated. This is how I want to be judged. It's those moments in which our righteousness is demonstrated to be filthy. It's those moments in which those things which we could have boasted in become so shameful as to be considered to be fecal matter. Just to give another illustration of how detestable this is, if you 've ever spent any time on a farm, you know what stepping in a cow pie is, we have these other types of pies they're cat pies. Uh, as you may know, Dayton has a feral cat problem, and all the time, all the time, every single week at our house, there is a cat in our backyard. Uh, later on, I may commission you to come and watch watch my backyard for cat duty but a few weeks ago i stepped in some cat turd and then then did not notice i did not notice although my sensory uh you know my nose was functioning that day i just wasn't aware of it and then i walked inside and i walked inside and i then proceeded to move if you've been in my house you might know where I, I came in the back door i walked through the living room into the kitchen and then from the kitchen into the front room, or I guess that's the living room, dining room, kitchen, front room, and walked over a brand new carpet that I had just bought the week before. Now, now here's why I'm, I'm emphasizing this. It took about 30 minutes to clean up. And if you've ever smelled cat poop, it is the most aromatic of all poops. It was horrifying. It was horrifying. But this is what Paul is intending to convey. As scandalous as it sounds, this is the word in the original text that Paul is intending to use to demonstrate when we uphold our things, those things which we have done, as being the basis for our standing before God. That is what it is like. It is like living in and spending time with cat poop. Now, I want to explain this because I fear that although you may intellectually agree with that, you say, okay, that makes sense. I will trust in Christ and not trust on myself. Where the rubber meets the road with this issue is not at the intellectual doctrine. It's at the day-by-day heart moment when after treating your wife or husband terribly or your children terribly, in those moments, you feel tempted to be so filled with shame that you doubt your position with God. Brothers and sisters, it's not on the basis of your effort. Same as after you do something that you consider to be good, whether or not God thinks it's good is another matter. If you consider it to be a good thing done for the sake of God's glory, after that moment, if you're more happy about your condition with God in that moment than at your day-by-day kind of just average indication level of your your heart's uh, healthiness before God, whether you feel at that moment to be justified in yourself, then you're operating in that pride that we were talking about. Your understanding of God's love for you should not rise and fall with your daily sins and or good deeds. And that's where the rubber meets the road here. Paul says he considers it as being loss, as being rubbish, as being that which is worthy of being thrown away, burnt, and never seen again. He then says, he continues to follow Christ, no matter what takes place. Now, if you are truly in Christ, you do not hear that admonition to not allow your heart to rise or fall based on your good deeds as not license to continue in your sin, but all the more ammo to run from it into the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, he says, in order to know him and the power of his resurrection, being united in the sufferings uh, becoming like him in his death. So Paul exam- abandons those things which he used to esteem and he calls them to be done. And so he he looks at everything that he would have had as being completely and utterly worth, worthless. And so really, to, in order to follow Christ, you have to give up everything. And then here come the objections: Well, everything? Like, my, what about my job? Well, you know, now I'm married. Do I have to? Yes, Everything. Jesus Christ said, "If anyone comes to me and is not willing to hate his mother, brother, sisters, etc., he's unworthy to be my disciple." And yet we assume that our familial allegiance, our family allegiance, is a deeper weight than our Christian conviction. Brothers and sisters, if you are not willing to have everything removed from your life—I mean everything—just to give an example, read the book of Job everything in your life removed. If you do not esteem Christ more than that, you are unworthy to follow him. Modern Christianity is appealing to get as many people to become Christians as we can, and yet we've lost the central core of of a gospel which Christ himself exhibited when he did not follow after the rich young ruler. Whenever you consider something in life to be more important than obedience to Christ, it is like the rich young ruler walking away from Jesus. I think it's important to remember Jesus did not pursue after the rich young ruler. There are those who esteem Christ as being a low thing, being unworthy of their time or or the loss of certain things. Paul says it's all on the table. There's nothing which is off limits. And so the righteousness of God which is found in Christ is greater than anything else. And the righteousness of God in these verses is not, done on, is not given to you granted on the basis of faith. Now I want to state again, I love the English standard, but again I think there's just an imprecise translation here. In verse 9 it says that I may, be, may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness Of my own, which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The word depends there in other translations is usually translated as according to. So the righteousness of God is not a conditional thing, it's not conditionally dependent on faith. It's not conditionally dependent. I don't have to have faith in order to then receive the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is done according to faith. In the New American Standard, it's translated exactly the same way as in the King James, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Not according to faith, not dependent on faith, not as a reward for faith. It comes on the basis of faith. And so Christ, when he manifested his glory to Paul, he broke through the blindness of Paul's spiritual condition and began to open Paul's eyes to the worthlessness of that which he so highly esteemed and the beauty and glory that Christ has in himself. This is the great gift and exchange that God gives to us in the gospel. And so this call that Paul is invited on, follow me, Jesus essentially is saying, is an invitation for a spiritual journey. Again, one of these modern ideas concerning spiritual journeys is that we're all on this spiritual journey, either together or separately, and we're progressing through life in some way and... Uh, I would like to challenge your understanding of what that journey is supposed to look like. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. This is so important as Christians, especially those who did not grow up in the Christian faith or grew up in a context that was somewhat damaging or, or uh, destructive to you, um, or to your family, or or what have you, Paul is showing that even if you have something good to boast in, you should forget it. You should per, move, move past it and press on to Christ. Verse 14, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in God, in Christ Jesus. And then he gives a test. In verse 15, he, Paul himself gives a spiritual maturity test. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way, And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I love Paul's confidence in the Holy Spirit. He says that if you are a believer and you are thinking in an imprecise way about your condition before God, that God the Spirit will come and reveal it to you. I love that. That's a wonderful thing, especially as a pastor. Because we all have these areas in which we still esteem ourselves as being commendable toward God there's nothing that commends us towards God. It's God's sovereign choice. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, Paul's statement here in this verse, in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, he is not adopting the language of the modern false humility uh, culture that we have going on today. That, That same tolerance Spirit, which would suggest that all religions are equal or all faith claims are equal, and it 's not at all this the language of what modern uh, what modern uh, people use when they are talking about spiritual journey have you Have you heard this term used in Maybe your friends have used this, or maybe people on you know, Facebook or Twitter have used this, or in your conversations with other students at your schools or, or other friends, have they ever used these sorts of languages uh, or terms, such as, well, I'm just you know, on a journey towards faith, or another, especially the, the cult of Oprah likes to use this term, I'm seeking spirituality. And, and there's this notion in which there's just this individually directed and individually focused perambulation through all these different religious faith claims and calls. And there's no particular journey or, or end or destination. There's no manner by which we go through this journey. It's just sort of you're seeking out God and you're seeking out what's right for you. That type of thinking is to be absolutely and thoroughly rejected. As Christians, we cannot entertain that notion at, in the least. It is not the case that Paul is saying, well, I just haven't attained to it yet, and there are other brothers and sisters of Christ who can really like, help me correct a bunch of problems. No, Paul is saying that there is still an upward calling of God, but he's not renouncing or rejecting the center of the faith. It's not as if Paul is rethinking major doctrines and he's just kind of going about life and completely uh, open-minded enough so as to let his brains fall out. No, Paul is saying that there is still an upward call, but it is continual progress. Modern people, if, they, if we were to write Pilgrim's Progress again, Pilgrim's Progress would just kind of end somewhere in the middle where he got diverted into like some hobby of... Of his own making, and he just goes around in a quagmire of wondering, instead of getting to the celestial city. There is a goal and a destination, and there is a manner by which we are to walk. It is not just some sort of self-directed, self-focused, uh, missional, uh, you know, missional effort. It's just uh, this kind of slurry of counterfaith claims, which can be either received or rejected, whatever is right for me. Not at all, not in the least. Christians are called to walk according to a particular manner, and they walk from glory to glory. They don't walk from glory to completely renouncing the faith and then returning to the faith or by, uh, bypassing major sufferings. We walk from glory to glory through trial, through suffering, according to God not according to how we wish to walk. Christians must grow and mature, especially as concerns our ability to live out what we believe or what we claim to believe. Christians should not be regressing continually and then every once in a while feeling like, well, I'm going to now clean myself up and return to Christ. Brothers and sisters, you were apprehended for a high calling, and that high calling is glorious. It is not something which can be stumbled into. One of my favorite quotations, I believe it's from A.W. Pink, is that holiness is not haphazardly encountered. As, As Christians, as those who are redeemed and sanctified and being sanctified, as Christians, we do not just routinely fall into holiness. It must be pursued. And so Paul gives us the way in doing it. In doing so, in going on this spiritual journey, we do not let go of the center of the faith. And I define the center of the faith, of course, to be the scriptures and found in the creeds, but not just that, a understanding of and a practical outworking of the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, which necessarily presupposes his eternality. That is, there is no incarnation without the Son of God being divine and also co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. And so by saying the incarnation of Christ, I mean God did come in the flesh, that's the litmus test of all heresy, especially in, when you consider the historical founding of the faith. All historical heresies at, in the first few centuries were always on our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. God came in the flesh, walked as a man, paid for our penalties on the cross. That, then that idea of the doctrine of the incarnation then leads us to the necessity of repentance, the necessity of redemption. And then from there, the righteousness which comes by faith, not as a result of my efforts or attempts to approach God. So therefore, as those who have an upward call to Christ himself, we should not rest on the progress of yesterday. This is so easy, especially if you have been walking with Christ for any length of time, especially a few years if you've been pursuing after God. You kind of begin to sense, well, I'm now pretty mature. I understand the scriptures Pretty good, you know. I have a few things in my life that are set up right. You know, I, I'm married. I have a job. These, whatever you're saying to yourself in those moments, put in your own particulars for for yourself. Whatever you are hoping and trusting and resting upon, Paul says, forget it. Forget what lies behind and continue and pursue. Now, I'm not saying become an unfaithful spouse or quit your job. Um, What I'm saying is, you do not hold those things as treasures which you have attained. You hold those things lightly, because they will be taken from you. This is especially hard to believe as a church full of young people. People die all the time, and people grow old and die all the time. If there's one thing that affects all of us, it is that we will all die. And you should routinely examine your life to see, what are those things that I'm treasuring that I would not be able to treasure should I be on my deathbed. And if those things are the majority of what fills and consumes your heart, then clean house before God. So we continue to follow Christ by learning from his word, his spirit, and his ministers, while holding firm to the ground we have obtained. This is why the, the language of modern spiritual journey is so dangerous, is because it opens you up to this idea, well, it's not necessarily the case that I need to stay true to my convictions. I have to give myself room to grow after all. No, you build on what you have attained by the grace of God. You do not reject the foundation. You build on the foundation. So Paul then, as a logical progression, welcomes us into that exact same lifestyle's uh, a lifestyle of pursuing after Christ with everything, not resting on your laurels, so to speak, not resting on those things which you consider to be good, forgetting what lies behind, pursuing after Christ with everything. And then Paul gives us this wonderful invitation. I love this verse, brothers, join in! Exclamation point right there, just pause the verse. Brothers, join in! Do you not have a sense of the camaraderie and the fellowship which exists in the Christian faith? Brothers and sisters, we are alive to God just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the church throughout the ages, there is a fellowship of the community of the redeemed. We say this all the time in the Nicene Creed. We believe in the fellowship of saints, the communion of saints, that the church victorious, the church militant, really are joined by the Spirit of God, and there really is a fraternal belonging in Christ. That is, as those who have become alive to Christ, those who've been engrafted and adopted, we are a family. And so Paul is right to call them brothers. And then he says, join in. This is absolutely amazing. If you have any sense of longing for fraternity, or that is to say, not not the thing that happens in college. Those are really bad fraternities. Those are false brotherhoods that you wish to reject and avoid. The true fraternity, the true brotherly love which exists in Christians is this type of fellowship, the ongoing imitation of those who've come before, a reception of that faith tradition, and a continuance in and an expounding upon that life. Brothers, join in imitating me, Here's that sacred cow that I was talking about. Have you ever heard a fellow Christian encourage you not to look at man? Don't look at man, brother. Look at Christ, not me. Brothers and sisters, if you are telling people to look at Christ and not you, then change how you are living. Now, not all of us will tomorrow be Paul, and not all of us can say today, brothers, join in imitating me. But you should be on track. You should have it as a goal for your life and witness being, of course, always done by the power of the Spirit, receiving the grace of God, to get to the point where you can rightly say to your brothers and sisters, join in, imitate me. This is what you are called to be as a Christian. You're called to be salt and light. You're not called to be like some other spice and this like glowing, (laughs) wafty candle of like just slightly... Effective, you are called to expose darkness and give light to those who are blind. Join in. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. This is essentially a recap of verse 2 where he says, there are dogs who are seeking to come in. The reason Paul says, join in and imitate me is because you will necessarily imitate someone. Many of us, we kind of have this idol of self, and we think, well, we're very unique, we're making our own choices, we're, you know, we're, we're directing our life. It's not the case that this is true for you. You are, not, you are not just living your life how you wish. You are imitating someone, and imitate those who have the aposto- apostolic witness. Those who walk against Christ are those who are consumed with consuming. He says, their gods are their bellies. Now think about this, the God of the belly is a God that is continually consuming. If you eat something today, it will necessarily in a few hours, if you're very hungry in a few minutes, want something else. Paul's saying, do not follow after those who live lifestyles of consuming everyone around them. And it might be easily clear, although we're pressed for time, it might be very easy to demonstrate an analogy to the modern faith preachers especially those who maintain that you must send the money to get the sanctified handkerchiefs. But I would just encourage you that there are more than just Christian charlatans at work in Paul's estimation. Those who deny the gospel turn from it and pursue their other ends. They glory in the very thing which should be condemned and renounced. So Paul identifies this citizenship as being given to Christians, as being in heaven. Now again, we don't take this too far. We don't We don't take this to the wrong place that Paul doesn't intend, which says because we have a citizenship in heaven, nothing on earth matters. No, quite the contrary. Christ is becoming victorious over those things on the earth. Those who are journeying through this life are anticipating a Savior. This is what we mean as Christians when we say the phrase, the blessed hope. That hopefully is a a phrase that you've heard as a Christian. The blessed hope as Christians is not just the resurrection from the dead it also is living and reigning with Christ. And this is exactly what Paul says in these very same verses. I want to highlight something, lest you assume that your personal belief about where you're going, what's going to happen to you, your personal eschatology is divorced from your understanding of eschatology proper, or that is cosmic eschatology. Paul links them together And so what I would encourage you to say, what I would encourage is we all as Christians have a hope personally of being resurrected from the dead and living with Christ. But even so, that very same hope, Paul says, is at work and Christ is reigning over his enemies now. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at how he links the two of these ideas together. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body? That's the resurrection from the dead, which comes at the second coming. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The current reign of Christ is as sure as the personal bodily resurrection. That should level the, the, the grounds on our eschatology. Esch- Eschatological debates. Because what essentially Paul is saying is the very same power that you're hoping in for this personal resurrection is already at work defeating the enemies of Christ. Christ is already, according to 1 Corinthians 15, subjecting those things which are enemies underneath his feet. And he links these two by the very same power. That is the power of the Spirit by which God will and according to 1 Corinthians 15, raise us, is currently at work as he's living and reigning on the throne. And this is absolutely wonderful news. The glorious end for which we hope is one and the same bodily resurrection and the eternal reign of Christ being made manifest for all to see that no enemy should be victorious over him, but that he would have complete glory and victory in everything. And that is our hope as believers. So Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for the testimony of Paul as he explains in this chapter how he received a righteousness. And it allowed him to esteem everything else as being worthless in the light of you. We ask you, God, that you would give to us a spirit of wisdom that would receive these things that Paul has testified to, that we would receive the apostolic tradition, that we would take up that call that Paul invites us to in a spirit of camaraderie and brotherhood, that we would join in and imitate the apostles and those who have continued in their tradition. God, we ask you that you would deliver us from low thinking about our life, that our purpose on this planet is some small thing, but that we would see the upward call of God as being glorious and beautiful that we would be filled with hope and destiny that we would be filled with joy and zeal to follow up after you. God, I also ask that you would do by your spirit a miracle that would would deliver us from the pains of yesterday and also the vain glories that we have trusted in in the past and even today are tempted to trust in. We pray God that you would give us a spirit of supplication that would eagerly desire to, by grace, receive these things and then live them out. God, we ask you that you would do this for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, that he would receive the complete reward of his sufferings. In Jesus' name.